listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. We are very fortunate this week to have another really cool guest with us to talk about growth. And last time we were together, we met with Rod Sushak from Gritseed about the people side of growth. So sort of essentially how you find people that can drive growth. And this week, we're actually talking with Michael Burton, who's CEO of Lev, and we're going to talk about growth inflection points. So how to identify them, how to maybe create them. So let's just start really right at the top. Michael, introduce yourself to our listeners, I guess, and we'll jump into this notion of inflection points, what they are and what they mean to you and what you've experienced around them. Yeah, thanks. So excited to be here. As Jason said, I'm Michael Burton. I'm the CEO of Lev. We're part of the Cognizant family as of about March of this year. And I've been at Lev for about four, maybe four and a half years. I left, I came directly from Salesforce to Lev, and where we kind of set out to be one of the best of the best at helping marketers solve problems with Salesforce. And it's led to a tremendous growth story for us where we've had lots of different inflection points as we've helped marketers keep up with digital, all the things that are changing, especially in this past year. So it's a, I think it's a really timely conversation because I'm actually feeling like we're going through another inflection point right now. So like really curious and anxious to be able to share that story with you all. And oddly enough, you went through an exit at the heart of the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> or, Truly. Or, that's crazy. So that, that's a whole other podcast in and of itself, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I think the day after the two days after we closed our, our office is when we announced our acquisition. That's amazing. Too fun. Well, let's let's start with the first inflection point. And in my mind, and this is one of the the many reasons you're on the podcast with us today, you were at Salesforce. And you left Salesforce, and I want to know why you left Salesforce, how you ended up at Lev. But when you entered the the doors of Lev, you must have had pixie dust on you or something because Lev's growth just skyrocketed when you walked through the door. Help our listeners understand Salesforce to Lev and where you got the pixie dust. Yeah, the, I think the, the pixie dust started prior to Salesforce. So I was... I was very fortunate to become a part of a company here in Indianapolis called Exact Target. And shortly after I joined Exact Target, we were acquired by by Salesforce. I think within a couple of months it felt like uh, that happened. And it was it was good timing for me. The some of the backstory I was I led a part of our services group at Exact Target. And the model there was actually to keep as much of the consulting and services in-house versus someone like Salesforce, which is very different. So there wasn't a lot of incentive to develop a large partner ecosystem around exact target. We leverage other partners as resellers. And whenever we had capacity constraints, we would call up another agency or a partner to help us. But as I know, I was fortunate to see how what that exact target ecosystem looked like. And I really understood how Salesforce positioned partners, which was all about partner first. You would have partners to sell alongside of you and then to take that service, that customer, grow that account, grow it with Salesforce as well, was, was a very different model. And to me, seeing that there was a lot of demand coming and there weren't going to be enough strong partners to support that helping marketers in that Salesforce ecosystem. You know, it took me a couple of years as I was talking to some of my peers and thinking, we could just do this outside. We probably could be really successful in doing that. So I had some theories about how it would work. 
And then finally got connected to, to Lev, which had a little bit in the Salesforce space, very tiny bit. I mostly was in Sugar CRM. And I was lucky to get connected to them, frankly, through a recruiter. And it was a small enough platform in which we could start to go build upon. And so I kind of took those theories of if I can go pull some very strong people that know Salesforce marketing and have those exact target roots, I, I was pretty confident that we could be successful. And within that first six months, we started seeing that success. We started seeing the pipeline grow. I'll say it was a lot harder than I thought. I thought I could just call up and use my network and it would be easy to do and we would get these deals. But I had to rethink how we sell. Most of us didn't have a selling background. So we had to go figure that out. And I, I think at that point in 2016, when we went, our very first deal was like $4,500, which was exciting at that time. And still is exciting when I think back to it. And we just kind of tested those theories. Like, is there really a need for a strong marketing-focused consultancy like Lev in the Salesforce space? And the answer was yes. And it continues to be. I would still even argue that there's still lots of opportunity in this space as we kind of see demand continue to grow. So that's how we, I was fortunate to come into the, the Lev space and and I think that you know that decision to leave and take a little risk has frankly paid off well uh, for all of us here at Lev over the last over four and a half years. There's so many levels of curiosity in me right now. I'm not even sure where to start. So what were some of the keys to unlocking growth when you walked in the door? You said initially you thought, well, you could just work your network and you would have plenty of opportunity. That didn't pan out that way. So, so what did pan out? I mean, what were some of the things that started to work and click such that deals started to flow? One of the things that I learned early on is that, you know, I looked at some of those partners that were in the space, companies that had been in the exact target space for so long, they were used to being fed work. Like whenever their capacity constraints work just magically, not magically, just kind of flow to them. And I, I, I know because I definitely subcontracted to many of them. So in my mind, I was thinking it would just be that easy. You know, I would just kind of show up. And then what I realized and where the true opportunity was is if I can help Salesforce sell better, if I can paint a better picture of the problems that we can solve and back it up with the technical ability, so it's kind of a mix of strategy and technical expertise, I could get truly cut, be very close to that Salesforce seller, those account executives. So we realized that in the first couple of months that, oh, well, the partners weren't used to truly selling like that before. And the Salesforce account executives weren't used to having that kind of reliable partner to bring alongside in very big pitches that if we could take all of our focus and just wrap it around going to support those Salesforce sellers, we felt like we could organically build up a great pipeline of work. So we weren't going to go to all the sellers at once at Salesforce and say, here's love. We have roots and exact target. Let's go do this. But we are very targeted in a few groups and we just started working deals with them. And we invested in those deals just like we were Salesforce and when we did that, we helped them close deals. We helped make the deals bigger. We mitigated risk on deals. We were able to close them faster. When you do that for a partner, you get a lot of opportunity. In fact, your name spreads very quickly to other account executives in that team. And then it, then it goes from that team to another team. And that's what we realized early on is when we could help those sellers and we could then go on the back and go deliver it and be able to continue to grow that account, we could jumpstart Lev. And that's where we invested all of our time. And basically sales support 
for Salesforce, and it worked. We went from that you know that initial forty five hundred dollar deal to within a few months we closed our first six figure deals and a services deal, and then it just started to exponentially grow from that point moving forward. Is you're doing this, Michael? I assume, given your Salesforce house, you're you're looking at your pipeline. You can see this burgeoning um, opportunity and deal flow. Is that all you looked at to say, oh yeah, look at that. We did some things right. We're going to have an inflection point. I could say at that point, you know, our use of, of looking at a pipeline with most of us having no prior true sales experience, we weren't the best at looking at what a pipeline, <laughs> you know, what it looked like or how do we even use why we came from Salesforce. We weren't necessarily deeply embedded in the CRM portion. So I'd say at those early days, we didn't have a ton of kind of insight, which did create pain once we started growing. We did look at things like, number of touch points, what groups were we working with? I, I think one of our first big wins that I looked at is that you can find other groups with any kind of partner, whether it's Salesforce or, or Microsoft or Adobe, that there are these typically groups that you can use to spread your capabilities and benefits to a very broad group of people. And we happened to find that group early on in 2016. It was a group of about five people. And if I could convince these five people, they were helping salespeople. They were like kind of partner account managers at Salesforce. If I could help them spread our story, then I could reduce the amount of time my team has to go and try to prospect into all these Salesforce people. So I looked at, we kind of had a lot of focus on touch points into that group. What were opportunities that were coming out of that? And then over time, we did we had to get a lot more sophisticated in our pipeline and how that kind of translated into when do we need to hire people. But early on, it was very chaotic and messy and kind of fun. And out of curiosity, when you decided it was time to get more sophisticated, was the thought, well, we need to go hire a professional sales manager or a sales lead that really knows how to understand pipeline and sales process? Or was it, we got to skill ourselves up? We know what we're doing. We just, we haven't you know, formalize these sales methodologies, processes, or use cases yet. How did you approach that? I think the first couple of years, it was more of us learning. We were upskilling ourselves. We were learning to create a closed plan. We were understanding how do you truly manage a proposal? When do you do a proposal? It was very much of us kind of learning on our own. And I'd say if, if I had to do this all over again, and I did learn it later, but I think about those first couple of years, I really think I wish I would have gone back and brought someone that had been there and done that earlier. I eventually did that. But in those first couple of years, it was like, hey, we're just going to roll up our sleeves and figure it out. And some of it was because we were still a small company. I Some of those investments, like when could I make that investment? I didn't have enough clarity on because we didn't have enough systems and processes in place. So we, we did just kind of try to figure out how to improve ourselves until we finally went and made those changes. we made those hires. We brought in a chief sales officer. I brought in someone that had a lot of experience in developing professional services organizations. It's more of a COO. It took me some time and making some mistakes before I got to that point and, and made that decision. I should have probably made it, you know, six months to a year earlier. Not that I would be one to challenge your success, <laughs> but I wonder if the fact that you didn't hire somebody and you figured it out on your own, 
made it easier to really get cultural buy-in to the to the process longer term versus having somebody come in and impose some kind of form of sales structure on it. But in terms of potentially, I've just seen in in professional services firms when you try to overlay something like that that's too formal, it sounds good for a month and then it's <laughs> then it dies. But the way you described it, there were several things I think are important that I'm taking away from what you've said so far about laying the foundation for an inflection point. The first one is have a hypothesis. Two, you have to focus. You got rid of sugar CRM and and said, no, let's, let's focus on Salesforce. Then you said within Salesforce, let's focus on a subset of salespeople in that channel and work deeply with them. And then let them take the story, you know, out to others once we've demonstrated value. And the thing that really jumped out at me was the two things about value. One, you just so succinctly articulated the value that Salesforce people were looking for, right? They wanted bigger deals, they wanted reduced risk, and they want faster time to close. And to me, that seems so commonsensical. But so many people don't think in terms of that other person with that clarity. And then on top of that, you said, and I think this is so important and it's something that Jason and I say all the time, but you started looking for problems you could solve. Talk a little bit about the problems you could solve given the core capabilities of Lev and how you began to kind of hone in on that. Because I'm assuming you were looking for the one that was really going to drive the growth that led to this inflection point. And I'd say when I first came to Lev, the problems I was focused on, we started with marketers, but even to more detail behind that, it was more about the technical know-how to make Salesforce marketing work. And because of that backstory on exact target and not having a, a very deep pool of people that knew that, that was where I would said I wanted to first focus. Like I want to be the best of the best when it comes to marketing. I would talk about marketing cloud and I would talk about very, we wanted, we'd have the technically the best of the best people in the world. And that worked. So we kind of put that whole selling along with Salesforce and then we had that great technical competency and it, it helped us go from, we started competing and we were going against the original partners that were in this space and the resellers, competing with them and, and winning and starting to drive our own business. Now, that was the first level where we focused on. And then what I was realizing as we we're talking with these, you know, with customers and spending a lot of time with VPs and marketing and CMOs is that we, many of us made the assumption that a lot of these marketers really understood what they wanted. They had a strategy in mind. They knew what campaigns, they knew their audience, and we could technically go do it. And what we realized is we got into it like, oh no, like there, there's a whole <laughs> other world for us to help them. Uh-huh. And and so that started driving me like, I don't really talk about marketing cloud any longer. I just, I talk about Salesforce and helping marketers because it's a broad platform. We're helping solve problems. But more and more of our work is around the strategy. And when I mean strategy, it is like, what should my campaigns, what channels should I be using? What audiences? There's so much that marketers have to go think through in a very complicated tech landscape. We help simplify it. 
and using that strategy and advisory services, in addition to the technical competency, has allowed us to go from competing with that original group of partners to now competing with some of the largest consultancies in the world. You know, we're we're a 250 person consultancy, but because of our niche and our focus, I can go head to head with any consultancy in the world and win and in very large significant brands because of that focus that we have around strategy and technical competency. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. I have a clarifying question just for listeners. Can you talk just briefly about the scale and speed of growth? You said you have 250 people right now, and you've been with the firm. If LinkedIn is correct, you've been there, what, four years. When you entered the firm, where was it then? And we can use headcount, you can use revenue, whatever you want. I just, I just want to kind of level set for people. What scale of growth are we talking about here? Yeah, so when you when you do it, an apples to apples comparison, I joined in April of 2016 from Salesforce, from left, yeah, from Salesforce. And we, if you kind of take out the people that were focused on sugar, that's no, not really part of our any business any longer. We went from two, three people, <laughs> April 2016 to 250 now. And we're trying to hire about 50 roles right now. 60 to 68% is our revenue growth. So a lot of team members, a lot of revenue growth, frankly, in a pretty short period of time. I want to talk a little bit more about your focus because there's an, there's another layer that, that enters into this focus because your primary focus is using these Salesforce tools for hyper-personalization and some of your clients, I mean, they're they're just great brands. And, and some of those brands are literally those brands with huge fan bases, literally. Like, I think maybe Indiana has a basketball team, the Pacers. That's my Chicago digging on you. <laughs> Caesars Entertainment and other things like that. Talk a little bit about that focus. We've never declared that we were going to focus on a certain industry or vertical. It was more about wherever we're helping marketers. What I can say about our business is that it's mostly focused on B2C. You know, as as the kind of companies that we're working with are B2C. I, I would estimate about 85% of our of our business is B2C. But because we've been able to position Lev as a leader and that strategy and technical competency, we're getting opportunities across many, many different verticals. We do spend a lot of time in retail, a lot of time in entertainment, media, that diverse spectrum of, frankly, across all of what we've had has, has made our made us be able to weather the pandemic a lot easier than for, I think, for other firms. But what, what all that's led to is just getting at-bats with brands that are doing just giant global initiatives. Like, I love the Pacers, and we actually do quite, we're, I think we're about, we're more than a half of all NBA teams. We're in the NFL, NHL. But I, I love our entertainment stories outside of that, especially like online streaming services. So we, we've been working with for Disney for a couple of years in the streaming services, which is ESPN Plus and Disney Plus. But the amount of personalization that requires to come back with recommendations and what you're watching, what you should know about and rolling that across the globe. Those are the kinds of brands and initiatives that we're working 
working on. We're helping companies that had no direct to consumer in their channel now realizing they they've got they have to be there. They have to in order to protect their growth, they need to be more direct to consumer. But it it is you know, personalization, it's a buzzword, but you know, really it comes down to how do we get away from batch and blast, which I'm still surprised to see so many brands do that, to get very targeted in improving that overall customer experience. And that's just opened the door with just some of these brands that I absolutely adore and I use every single day. So let's get back to the kind of stages of an inflection point. Here's kind of the key I I hear in creating one is is getting really focused and aligned with the market and your capabilities. And then you said you started looking at specific kind of metrics building in terms of anticipating it. I'd like to know from your perspective, Michael, when you're at the inflection point, how do you know it? What changes in order to manage that steep incline once it starts? I've always thought about, I feel inflection points. I've told this to a couple of friends of mine and they always kind of give me like this puzzled look. Like, what, what do you mean you feel an inflection point? And the way I explain it, and I felt one, I was thinking about this before our call today. I felt one last Wednesday at 5.30 PM. I was at my office desk. And inflection <laughs> points, they are like, they, they truly are like, they're so real that they they lead for, to me personally, and I've only felt this at Lev. I've never felt this at any other company. It's adrenaline. It's like I feel it. It's all these micro events and some big events that they're all coming together at one time. So it's never just like one big deal. It's these like five different conversations and these initiatives that are coming along. And Salesforce is calling you and saying, Michael, we need more help in Q4. And you get this big deal. There's like these pulsating things of energy that all come together at one moment. And you're like, okay, now's the time. What are we going to go do with all of this energy to help propel us to that next phase? And what I can say early on, we didn't have a great way to harness that. So what would happen was all those events would happen and you get all these great deals, but you weren't really prepared for it. In our world, being prepared for it is, do you have the team members? Do you have the number of people? Do you have the right skills to meet the demands of those customers? Do you have the right offerings? We didn't have that early on. And it definitely was painful trying to bring in people quickly to, to meet that. And, and now what we've done is, is I can have, I can feel that. I can go through those inflection points. But we have all the things in place to identify when those things are starting to happen. So I, I can look more into our pipeline. And I look into our pipeline and I understand my conversion rates. I understand my time to close. I understand how that pipeline translates into revenue and when is going to translate into revenue. What's my current capacity and how does that meet the demands? So now I've got a lot more confidence. I can manage through those inflection points by just looking at the data. And that, that's why right now we are literally trying to hire 50 people because I can see that that's out on the horizon and I can use that data. I'm very, very big on data. Anecdotes are great, but data is what makes every decision that live, important decision that live. And it allows us to take advantage of those bursts of energies, capitalize on those opportunities, deliver great customer success with all the great people, and then help prepare us for the next inflection point that's going to go come. It is all about that data. And we've turned into power users of Salesforce. I model everything. 
inside of Salesforce, not just the pipeline, but again, everything down to revenue. Our proposals are, are all in there. And I think that gives me a lot of confidence in how we manage our day-to-day and our growth. I bet your CFO likes that. He loves it. He's, he's had a great run getting in front of that. And you know that funnels back into our cash flow and our AR, which then fuels more and more of our growth. So it, it's been fun, especially I can, he, he loves it now because all those investments that we've made over the last couple of years, you know, that lets the foundation. So now we're seeing significant improvements in our EBITDA now. So we've got that great leverage in place and we've got the revenue coming and everything's starting to really click across all of our financial metrics. That's cool. I know we're going to get the slap down here from Jason in just a minute. So I want to ask you one more question. Is that okay, Jason? Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. We have practice leaders, managing partners, marketers, you know, chief revenue officers listening to us right now. And they're going, I want what Michael has. What advice would you give to somebody who wants what you have, but hasn't been able to get there? I believe it comes down to focus. I think as I talk to others that are in the space or they want to get into Salesforce or they're looking to get into whatever partner ecosystem, way too many times I hear everyone, they want to tackle a lot of different products. You know, they want to be a general partner. And I did learn so early on that that focus and finding like, what are you going to be really good at? What are you passionate about? That overlap and being focused on that is really where the driver is. And if you can't see it, can't find it, then you're in the wrong spot. And then you got to go figure out, is there another partner channel? Is there some, another product? Is there something about my experience that allows me to focus in on one particular thing where I'm going to be great? That's where I kind of go back to. And we think about that all the time, even now on level. Yes, go to market and our messaging, but what else can we do to continue to focus on? Like we made a big change a year and a half ago where we had we, we had sellers that were selling both net new and into existing. So that's not going to work. We broke it apart. Hey, you go focus. It led to a huge growth. Now we're kind of working doing the same thing with a new cognizant channel and, and having a group that focuses on that. But I think focus, finding when there are the areas of other opportunity, new companies that are coming about. And I'll, I'll give a really tactical one too, because it's like I look at what in this space, especially marketers, what Twilio is doing. They've made a lot of incredible acquisitions in the past year. And if I'm a marketing background, I'm thinking, where are they going to need more help to focus and then be able to help themselves? I'm paying attention to those types of opportunities. That's why I encourage others that are trying to get in to be a similar position as Lev. Those are some of the things that kind of come immediately to mind. Wow. We can stop there, Jason. Yeah, it's been very illuminating. I really appreciate Michael taking the time to talk with us. I think it's a really great story of focus. And I also think it's a different angle on focus than we normally talk about and we normally see. So I like it a lot. Michael, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Hey, Michael, expect to be invited back soon. Will you come back? Yeah, great. I would love to. I'm I'm still giving Jay Labs a little bit of grief for not getting connected to your podcast much earlier. It's been a lot of fun for me to listen to the last couple of weeks and hear a lot of the things that I've gone through, a lot of pain points. So thank you all for doing this. Oh, <laughs> for, for codifying the chaos you lived through. <laughs> it's, it's, it's true. I like, I, I wish I would have had this a lot sooner. This is, it's been enlightening. All right. We'll quote you on that. Kind of you to say. Yeah. All right, Jeff, I'll talk to you next week. Michael, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks everyone. See you, buddy. See ya. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. 
Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Oh, oh, oh.